0: News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. F. A. Q. It's FAQ NYC. It's December 31st, New Year's Eve, the last day of Mayor Bill de Blasio. Whole new thing coming up. In a bit, you're going to hear from incoming council speaker, Adrian Adams, Uh, but first, Katie Honan, Professor Christina Greer. What's been happening this week? Another quiet one, right?
1: (laughs) I have a feeling we're not in for a quiet week for a very long time, Harry.
0: I'll buy that. Uh, Katie, you were at uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio's uh, goodbye ceremony for himself and walk out of City Hall. There were a bunch of uh, Trumpy anti-vax people people outside uh, yelling, Mean and profane things at him. It uh, started lit. It seemed like a uh, very fitting capstone for much of the last eight years. Uh, what wh- what were your thoughts on that and the uh, the last days of this uh, of this fellow we've all come to know and love?
2: To ring in 2022, I don't. I'm not going to talk about Bill De Blasio anymore. <laughs> I I think that's more of a rec- It's it's more of a reflection of. His last day, which was a disaster. Um shoving us all in the rotunda for a super spreader event. See, I'm breaking my resolution already. But yeah, I it really was a fitting goodbye. It it, it was yes, um wow, hours it was a late. Chronic
1: lateness. <clears throat> chronic
2: lateness, um change of plans, miscommunication, uh, you know, back slapping, no, I'm so great, and I know you're so great, and I'm no, so great, know you're, so no, you're so great. Um Yeah, the protesters were vile um, and it worked, I guess, because Bill de Blasio moved everything inside. So yeah, I'm just looking forward and I will say I will be at the Times Square ball drop tonight to watch the swearing-in of Eric Adams. Bill de Blasio will be there. Um, So maybe I'll get to ask my final questions, which I was not given the opportunity to during his final briefing, but I'm just looking ahead to 2022. I was really looking forward to Inauguration Day at City Hall. Like I really have yeah,
1: come to look forward to that. You sort of see all the politicos and and folks who are leaving office and coming into office, and I guess uh, Adams decided that that wasn't going to be, and then he switched it to the King's Theater, and now he's going to be at the ball drop. So we're already in for a change of tradition, to say the least.
2: Yeah, it should be fun. I've never been to the ball drop, so I'm. I'm. It's a good excuse for me to go. Um, but yeah. I like to look ahead. I know you, we spoke a few moments ago with uh, Speaker, incoming Speaker Adrian Adams, Council Member Adrienne Adams from Queens District 28 representing, you know, Jamaica, Rochdale Village, Richmond Hill and other parts of Queens, uh, looking ahead to what the council will look like with her as Speaker. Um, you know, she won her re-election this uh, summer. She did run against uh, she had two candidates, but I think probably the most noteworthy was Reuben Wills, who she had replaced when he left the council after he was convicted. But I'll I i, I, did, I I'll note, and Harry uh, was going to note, but in the interview, I said that he was exonerated, but his conviction was overturned. So that is my self-correction there.
0: And there's but, um, a, a new trial that's been ordered, but uh, mm-hmm. has not happened yet. So, so we cannot, for the moment, say he is a convicted felon. We're waiting to find a... <laughs>
2: Yeah. But, you know, I think it was a good conversation in in looking ahead and um, this dynamic of a African-American female speaker for the first time, our second African-American mayor in New York City history. They went to school together, which I find very funny. Um,
1: And it's interesting. My incoming city council member, Crystal Hudson, is also a Spelman grad, just like Adrian Adams. Oh, wow. So it'll be some interesting overlaps here or there.
0: I think we've talked about this before, but it, it's striking to have a moment of widespread black political power. I think more so than when David Dickens becomes mayor in 1990 and, of course, is our first African-American mayor. But like with Dickens, at a moment when people are inheriting, I think, something of a, of a mess, more than has been appreciated, where we've had federal money that's sort of papered over the big... Uh, budget problems that de Blasio is leaving to this group. Um, Obviously shootings and violent crime are way up from two years ago. And I think it's actually a difficult moment for this incoming group Um, and, and and people have already been in power. So we have, you know, uh, African-Americans leading both houses of the state legislature, the city council now, the attorney general, the mayor for starters. And, I think, some difficult years ahead. So I'm very interested to see, of course, where the thumbs are on the scales and how that plays out politically. My my, my dog, who you may hear, is also waiting to find out the same.
1: They have thoughts. Well, you know, but the interesting thing is, Harry, years ago in graduate school, I wrote a paper about basically this is how you get black electeds when the country is going to, to crap and like economically we're falling off a cliff. Crime is up. You know, there's you know, white flight, there's middle-class flight, there's, you know, decrease in tax base, like we just have all these issues. This is when cities saw their first Black mayors elected. And so I think it's interesting to see that, you know, now we're in this really difficult position in governance and leadership, and we have all these Black leaders who are supposed to fix everything, miraculously. Um, But we also, for the first time, have real incredible diversity within Black leadership. So, you know, Eric Adams is nothing like David Dinkins. Mm. Do not read Charles Blow's columns that you know sort of try and make these sweeping statements. Um, but we have, you know progressive black folks, we have moderate to conservative black folks, We have institutionalist black folks. We have you know people who were sort of like Eric Adams was like wild black folks. Um, so I, I, I really can't call it. But what I do know is, you know looking at, say the past four decades, when this country and especially cities, are sort of at their low point. That's when voters seem to be willing to take a chance on black leadership.
2: Yeah. And I, I mean, I should point out, I, I would, if readers or listeners of ours haven't already read it, but I really liked Mara Gay's piece in the New York Times featuring a quote by Dr. Christina Greer about just the differences <laughs> of Eric Adams and David Dinkins um, and, and uh, you know, getting into. I know he his video from when he was in the state senate of checking your kid's room for drugs. It was endlessly mocked on Twitter, um, but I know that really does appeal to people. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm 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 white, but I'm like, doesn't anyone have any black friends growing up? Their parents were that's what their parents were uh, looking for as well. So it's certainly a different cultural shift, and it shows the diversity. I, I think a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, you know, mostly white people, don't understand the diversity within other ethnicities and. Uh, other races. Um, So it was a very fascinating and good look at just, yeah, just because they're both Black mayors, they are certainly not the same people. And getting into why his candidacy appealed, obviously beyond just Black voters.
1: Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, as I've said before, how the press corps keeps up. You know, a lot of the press corps wasn't here during the Dinkins era. They weren't here during the aftermath and the Giuliani era. Um, And so there will be times where, you know, they they might need to be pushed to understand the nuances of race and class. But then there are going to be other times where it's like, hey, Eric Adams, don't try and hide behind, you know, the, the curtain of racism mm. when it's like, we're calling you out for your BS. So, like, it's it's going to be uh, a moment of having, I think we're going to have some real racial conversations that we've never had before and we definitely didn't have in the Dinkins era.
2: Yeah.
0: So this is the first handoff of power from a Democratic administration to a Democratic administration since Koch to Dinkins. And that one, of course, was not voluntary. Uh, Dinkins beat Koch in a primary and then beat Rudy Giuliani to become mayor. Um, There's a lot of interesting continuity happening, particularly around COVID, where Eric Adams just finally announced that he is going to keep Bill de Blasio's new private business mandate as that gets challenged in courts and so on. But like de Blasio says he'll have a very white hand with it. He's been emphatic and presented a united frontier with de Blasio and Kathy Hochul, the governor about not having shutdowns. Um, and obviously we're going to see how that dynamic plays out going forward. New York has been through a shutdown or shelter in place or whatever you'd like to call it. Not so recently. I think a second one would be very traumatic, but then, and this will bring us into this interview. Um, We've had a very stark reversal on how Eric Adams says he's going to handle uh, policing and and prisons, jails in particular, uh, where solitary confinement was supposed to come to an end. Uh, Bill de Blasio announced that and celebrated it. then created an emergency order temporarily pausing it. Uh, That that started again. And now Eric Adams said, enjoy your one-day reprieve because this is coming back, although he says it's punitive segregation. And it will be different. So so sort of seeing where we have continuity in, in terms of philosophy and approach and where things are about to take a sharp turn, education looks like another very likely place, given what the uh, incoming chancellor, um, David Banks, has said to this point. Uh, there's going to be an awful lot to watch. And with that, let's bring in incoming council speaker, Adrian Adams, who's going to be at the center of this mix. Let's jump right in.
2: Thank you, incoming speaker Adams, for, for joining us. Uh, just for, for the listeners, this is New Year's Eve, so I guess it's not officially yet, but uh, when we release it, it'll be close to it. So thanks for having, you know, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today?
3: Great. And thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure.
2: So, you know, we just wanted to kind of jump in, I guess, uh, into I always reflect on the speaker's race and how all how it all shakes out. And it sort of is both transparent and opaque at the same time. People, there's a lot of chatter, but no one really knows what's going on on the back end. I just wanted to get your take on, I guess, reflecting on, on what that process was like for you, uh, your thoughts on it. And and especially it was a surprise to many people I spoke to that you became the speaker, but I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, on, on why it would be a surprise uh, or or why it shouldn't have been.
3: Oh such great questions, my goodness. Um, again, hi everyone. So glad to be here with you. Yeah, the, the speaker's race is a very um, it's very different. you know uh, it is not public facing per se. It's a vote of the body of the New York City Council you know to choose their leader. Um, I was actually number four in getting into the race. There were three of my colleagues were in prior. I was number four. Right after my primary, I had two challengers. Two challengers, one of whom was my predecessor, Katie. I see you smiling, so you know the backstory, Queens girl. Um, so, yeah, so you know, it, it was. Uh, I had to keep my seat. You know, um, you know, it's no joke. You know, I had to keep my seat, and um, I, I did very well in the primary. Thank goodness, my predecessor ended up coming in dead last. With someone who had never run before. So I'll put that out there too. Um, but yeah, I, I came in as, as the fourth council member to enter, to formally enter uh, the speaker's race. And then after me, um, colleagues, uh, five, six, and seven came in. And what's been more interesting to me than anything is that, you know, during that time, you know, in the heat of the summer in the heat of the race, and then moving forward into others jumping in, I always got the rap that, you know, she came in so late, she came in so late when there were three people who came in after me. So I found that narrative very, very interesting and the slant, quite frankly, that I thought was being put out. So in my perception, Katie, um, media kind of counted me out when I was really counted in a whole lot earlier um, than what media was portraying me uh, to be in the race. That's far as member support, the work that was being done and a whole lot of other things. So I have to say that the coverage that was given to me um, was not you know, as great as the coverage that was given to others and that perception that, you know, that she wasn't in it, she was in the back, which I was not in the back (laughs) at all. You know, I was kind of placed in the back and I have my own thoughts about that too, you know, about what happens to women, uh, women of color who do certain things that other people um, have done traditionally in our placement, you know, in, you know, things like the speaker's race and other races and politics in general.
2: I would love to hear those thoughts because I do think it's it's fascinating There's so so much of the coverage and, and I'm part of the media as well, but a lot of it is driven by just who's talking to us who's sending you the signal messages I'm hearing this, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing that but I would love to hear your thoughts as to particularly for women of color um, even though that was who this, the members overwhelmingly said they wanted they didn't want they wanted a person of color they, they wanted a, a female, you know whether it was uh, a Hispanic, woman or a black woman, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, I guess, why you were sort of placed where you were, uh, to then win.
3: Yeah. Um, again, you know, I think that, you know, throughout, you know, our culture, we've got a culture of racism, you know, we don't run from it anymore. We, we speak about it, we accept it, it, you know, and it is, and we are very, uh, very, very intent on breaking those barriers, um, you know, racism in every sense of the word in our culture you know, in our media, in schools, uh, in our public safety spaces, and everywhere else, quite frankly, in transportation out here in Southeast Louisiana. And we see who, who gets it, who, who does not get. So, I mean, this is no different. This is just, you know, the inherent culture, you know, of our society. So, you know, enter, you know, uh, you know, a woman of color, be, be that, um, you know, Latino or, or African-American. And we see kind of the same thing. And you know, in kind of keeping us in spaces where we have to be our own megaphone, you know, in these spaces that um, don't necessarily want to see us moving, you know, and moving up and getting placement in in certain spaces. So um, uh, what happened with the members is something that has never happened in the history of the New York City Council, and I'm so honored by it. A stance was taken that there would be support Uh, around one candidate. This has never happened before. Uh, And, you know, uh, my colleagues, uh, you know, selected me to be that candidate and put their support in and overwhelmingly uh, over three dozen members of the council, you know, came out in that rally to support, to give the quotes, uh, you know, and just to cheer on this historic candidacy
2: and uh, what we we hope uh, and presume will be history on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, I do want to note, I saw you before the primary, at Archie Spickner's old club, uh, I guess before that very, I guess it was at that point unknown what would happen. So you certainly were ready for a fight, uh, for that. I felt like felt a little bit like church in terms of, you know, where, where oh. your heart and head was at in terms of the primary and, and what ended up pretty I'm well for say. you. Yeah. I had, that was <laughs> Katie, I had, ooh, and that was
3: the end of that day. Uh, yeah, that, that was in the heat of that primary race too. And I had, I had had it. So whatever you saw was just, you know, my higher power just coming through and the, in that preacher evangelist person and me just coming out and say, she can't hold this fire. So that's what you saw that day in that heat.
2: Oof. And then I guess did you bring a little bit of that, uh, you know, when it, c- it came to the speakers race, I know I spoke to you a few weeks ago about it. And you said the one thing you've sort of connected with the newer members on is, their districts look a lot like your district with the historic disinvestment from the city and, and a lot of the similar issues. So you bring some of that fire when you're speaking with people about what you can bring as speaker.
3: Yeah, definitely. You know, um, throughout, um, you know, throughout this, you know, the race for speaker, you know, I continue to say that, you know, I'm the outer borough um, person, you know, we pretty much have been ignored. It's been a Manhattan centric focus you know, via the speakership, understandably so, you know, you know, I would be the, the second speaker coming out of Queens, you know, second to Peter Balone Sr. Um, for the most part, we have had uh, speakers coming out of Manhattan and it's shown, it's shown through our policies, it's shown through our preferences, it's shown, you know, uh, Mayor de Blasio always spoke about, you know, the haves and the have-nots, you know, maybe paraphrasing. Uh, so, it, but but it's shown, you know, throughout many, many years of who gets this and who doesn't get this? So, you know, my priority, again, is going to be on, uh, you know, equity for the boroughs that look like mine, for the outer boroughs that really have been neglected, transportation deserts like my own in Southeast uh, you know, services that, that don't necessarily get the funding the way we should uh, in the way of uh, sanitation services and other things as well. So the priority is definitely going to be on the majority uh, of the boroughs of the districts surrounding my council.
2: Great. And I do want to kind of kick it way back. I guess we want to get a little bit about your background. And I should note, Chrissy Greer is also a Queens girl.
1: I mean, I was, I was waiting I to know jump that. in because I was like, well, you know, I, I feel like these two Queens ladies are just having this wonderful conversation, but I represent <laughs> Hollis Queens from nineteen. Oh,
3: that's where I was raised. <laughs> yeah, I was
1: raised in Hollis. That's right. 8920, 189th Street. I had to memorize that for my pre.
3: Is that right? For me, it's 112th Road right off of Farmers Boulevard. So, yes. It's, it's uh,
1: Queens, girls, and Harry. There you go.
0: <laughs> and Harry. <laughs> you do a little Brooklyn in the mix.
3: A
2: little all Brooklyn. All right, all right, right.
3: Brooklyn.
2: <laughs> we'll allow it. We'll allow it. Um. So, yeah, you, you grew up in Hollis. And and I am just so fascinated by the fact that, you know, you went to Bayside High School at the same time as uh, when our listeners listen to this, it will be Mayor Eric Adams. Um, and, you know, you went there. He's spoken a little bit about this experience of going to a predominantly white high school the city was was trying to integrate schools. And, and uh, I know Andrew Jackson was his own school and that kind of thing. But I, I was curious how that experience shaped you. And I did tweet. I, I did get the Ancestry.com subscription to find you in the yearbook. And you were oh very on. involved, a booster, a geo captain. I don't know what that was. You could let us know. But, you know, I am curious about just this experience in, you know, six, 1960s and 1970s in New York, and especially for public, public education, it was certainly going through a shift. So, how that experience may have shaped you and maybe even led you to what you're doing now. Just talk a little bit about uh, Go Commodores, Bayside High School. Mm, Go Commodores, indeed, indeed. And I was a booster and a cheerleader captain, mind you. Um, so, <laughs>
3: <laughs> and a member of the gospel chorus, uh, gospel choir, which was something that was unprecedented. We actually created the Bayside High School gospel choir uh, with Brian Scott, um, one of my classmates who I'm still in, in touch with as well. So yeah, that experience at Bayside was um I think that actually allowed me to start becoming um, uh, out of my shell and becoming uh, um, the me that I am. I was very, very introverted um, in elementary school. I went to St. Pascal uh, Elementary School, and um, uh, it was, you know, I was very shy, little girl, bullied. Um, and once I got into Bayside, I found my voice a little bit more and just started getting. Active, active, active and realizing that, you know, hey, this Shiloh girl actually has something to offer, you know, and actually does have a voice and can actually stand up for herself in a lot of different places. So Bayside really gave me that space, you know, to be me, come out of that shell uh, to, you know, to force some, some gifts out, um, some social skills out uh, of me that had not been in play in elementary school. So, uh, yeah, I was really active. Um, there. And, you know, from Bayside High, you know, I moved on. I I did a year and a half at York College. That's something Mm -hmm. that nobody talks about, but York College, CUNY, I I majored in music theory and then changed my major to psychology. Um, After a year and a half, I went to Spelman College and that's where everything took off. Uh, From there, the education that I got there was unprecedented. It was like um, my family was, was educating me. Uh, um, and I, I don't say that like light, lightly at all. Uh, it was like I'd go into a classroom, and an aunt would be in front; she'd be a professor. You know, that's how close we'd be in in those spaces at Spelman. I'd go over. We'd have classes also at Morehouse, and it would be an uncle, you know, standing in front of me, or yeah. a grandfather standing in front of me, you know, teaching me those life's lessons uh, in in different places that would carry me throughout my life. So it's places like that. Uh, and of course, I found my sorority alpha. At Spelman College as well, and um, I was actually uh, initiated by—I keep saying it—and I know they're not offended by eighty-two crazy women.
0: So uh,
3: <laughs> it was an absolutely amazing experience. I was number twenty-five uh, in uh, in, a, in a group of thirty-seven uh, the year that uh, that I went. Yeah, I was number twenty-five. My 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 name on that on that line experience was Songbird. So again, we and we're still in touch, of course. We're still in touch on the chat every day. So again, it's those experiences that really do um, build that foundation, particularly for a Black woman, uh, for a Black little girl who had no voice, um, who grew up with uh, parents uh, who were both union workers to their hearts um, until literally until the day they died, literally. Uh, Growing up in that wonderful middle-class family in Hollis, just my sister and I. Um, So, you know, those foundational things, the neighborhood things, the neighborhood that would consider you family back in the day, um, as we are all aware of, you know, whatever went on outside the door was never kept outside the door. You know, if your next door neighbor saw you, you know, swing a baseball bat in the street at six o'clock when you were supposed to be in the house by four. You know, I was a latchkey kid. My sister and I were latchkey kids. So if we were not in that house, you know, (laughs) then, you know, mom and dad would know about it, about it immediately. But it's those foundational things that help build, you know, um, the the person that I am today, the things that
2: I take with me and and have taken with me throughout my career. You know, one thing I thought of knowing the circumstances in Bayside High School, that it was predominantly white, the educators were predominantly white. Did it make you want to go? I mean, after your experience at York, did you say you wanted to go to an HBCU to experience something different? In a word? Yes. Um,
3: yes. And yes. Um, the experience at Bayside and, you know, and as I'm sure as Eric shared, uh, Bayside at the time that we were there, I believe was like sixty forty ish. We were just coming out of that, that, you know, uh, uh, an, an upper percentage, but we were about 60, 40, but there were still, you know, there was segregation in the schools and there's still segregation in our schools. Um, by the way. Um, where, you know, white students have lunch together, black students have lunch together and another table and another table. You know, um, so so a lot of that was going on. We still had, you know, um, differences, you know, that were made, you know, very, very vocal back in those days. But yeah, you know, I was taught by teachers at Bayside that, I a a matter of fact, I don't think that I have I'm thinking I did not have, you know, uh, a teacher of color. All of my teachers were white throughout um, my years at Bayside. What we did have Um, In the way of uh, African Americans at Bayside were guidance counselors, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, to, to the students that needed help. So for those students that needed quote unquote help, they went to the guidance counselors. I never had those interactions because for whatever it was worth, I was not one of those students that needed that kind of help to get through. The day or get through my classes or whatever, but I did have a very close friend of mine who lived in the guidance counselor <laughs> office on a daily basis. And I'm like, do you ever go to class? And she's like, no, I'm just going to sit up, you know, fourth period again and sit with Mr. So, You know, so, so that's where, you know, those, those uh, responsibilities were held for people of color in those guidance counselor areas, not necessarily the educational arena. <laughs>
2: And just one final question about base at High School. I know you and Eric have acknowledged being there together, but do you remember each other in, in class or in the cafeteria? Or wouldn't you like to know? No, <laughs> I, we would. That's why we're. It.
3: <laughs> oh, are we about to break well, some news here on FAQ? No, not at all. You know, and it's really funny because when Eric and I took the picture you know, in front of the school, I believe it was last week. Yeah. Um, and I will share this because he said it out loud. You know, uh, we, we looked at the building behind us and we looked at the park in front of us, you know, and, and he said it, I didn't say it. You know, I think most of my time was spent across the street and I said,
1: uh-huh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's acknowledged that I guess he, he played JV football, but then got mixed up with, you know, a lot of different stuff as well. Uh, yep. I will note, I think a lot of people hope to see your pictures next to each other alphabetically, but it is you're married. It was not the name you had. You were Adrian right. E.D. in high school.
3: That's right. That's right. And we are
2: in the same yearbook.
3: Yeah. And our pictures are in there. So if anybody wants to leave, you'll find it. You'll find me. <laughs> I, I mean, I had a whole lot of hair <laughs> as a kid. So it's a lot different look than this. Mm-hmm. So I no, think
2: Eric so. did too. What Okay, I'll Eric, had he- <laughs> yeah. Eric.
0: <had> he- <laughs> so, one reason I think that the uh, teachers remain so white, even as the school diversified, from the history I've read, actually has something to do with the teachers' union and having a last in, first out philosophy when the, the city had fiscal troubles and stuff like that that meant even as some of these schools were integrating, the, the teachers at the same schools were not. But I did want to ask you, because you brought up, you're uh, your, growing up in a, a union family. If you talk a bit about, uh, about uh, your mom, who I believe passed this year, and uh, sorry, uh, her work as a, uh, as a correction officer and how that's uh, informed your views. And, and then uh, from there, we might go to jails in the present for a minute.
3: Okay, sure. One of my favorite things to talk about is my mom who sits here on top of my Bible when I'm Zooming all day. She's with me. Um, Yeah. Lost her uh, 10 months. It would be 10 months on Christmas day. Uh, So, but she's always with me. I lost my dad nine months before I lost my mom. Oh,
2: I'm sorry.
3: Um, Yeah. It's been quite a, quite a time. Um, So, yeah. So I've got an angel on the right and an angel on the left. And we were very, very close family because they only had, the two of us, myself and my sister. So we were a very, very close family, you know, and although my parents had long divorced by the time my sister and I became adults, we were still very, very tight. Um, so yeah, my mother, I was raised in, um, in, once and I'll take it from, you know, when my parents separated, growing up in high school, those years, uh, my parents were separated and uh, my mother was a single parent um, for quite a few years to my sister and I. So, uh, I grew up in that culture, that correction culture. Um, uh, my mom was a very, very dedicated, uh, correction officer. And, uh, she would tell us a lot of different stories about what she'd see on a daily basis. She worked in the kitchen, uh, in the women's house as it was called then. We know it now as Rosie's as we call it but she worked for years in the women's house and her specialty was always cooking. My mother and father were both from South Carolina and both of them could cook very well. They passed that gift on to me, thankfully. Um, so does that mean my, we're
1: coming to your house for black? IP anytime all, anytime <laughs> at all.
3: Anytime. <laughs> I'll throw down for you. Still got some macaroni in here. I'm about to kill in a minute. So, um, yeah, <laughs> so, so, but yeah, so my mom would, um, She would share that, you know, in the kitchen, you know, as COED. She would share that stuff and teach, you know, and she would call them, you know, her girls. You know, she would, you know, like my sister and her. So they were an extension, you know, and they looked at her as a mother figure as young as she was, you know, growing up. So, you know, she would share those stories. So I'm aware of the, you know, the culture of correction, the language that's used, you know, being on the wheel and the being and the this and that all of that, you know, mom would come home and, you know, and tell those stories to my sister and I. And I said this to someone else the other day also in speaking about my mom, you know, we, um, kind of, uh, initiated and, and opened this kind of spa area, uh, some this past spring on Rikers where folks could where correction officers could kind of come out and have a Zen moments and um, under trees, you know, and all of that, the stuff that they need. All right. Uh, to kind of center themselves in the environment. That is Rikers, which is a help, by the way. So, you know, thinking back and growing up, my mother didn't have a spa, Um, you know, I don't think she ever had a spa day in her life. My sister and I were her spa. We were the ones that rubbed those feet and got them out of those God ugly shoes, (laughs) the horrible uniform and those horrible shoes. And, you know, my sister and I were the ones that were her spa, her babies, we were her spa, you know, coming off of sometimes. you know, double shifts on the wheel and, you know, experiences, sometimes an intake that she would have and other, and other things. So the, the, culture, the culture has changed a lot, you know, over those, you know, 30 some odd years from when my mother was a correction officer up to now. Um, Harry, to your point, and, you know, and seeing some of these situations that are, that are going on, um, the system is absolutely horrible. It uh, kind of has been left to take care of itself. And we see what that has garnered. Uh, we have it has garnered death um, in the way of detainees on Rikers Island. It has garnered, uh, you know, sexual assault in the way of detainee on female officers, which is my fight right now uh, in a piece of legislation that I introduced a few months ago. My mother's nickname was BB, and I call it BB's Law um, for those female correction officers and. Some folks don't like for me to talk about this because COs are supposed to be demonized. Well, in my book, you know, uh, my mother was and still is my favorite person, you know, next to my dad that I have ever known in my life. And to know that um, officers, female officers that just want to do their jobs, just want to have that middle class life, just want to raise their families, most of whom are women of color a lot of whom are single parents like my mother was, they're sleeping in their cars. Some of them are afraid to go to work because they have been pulled into jail cells. They have been molested. They have been groped. Um, They have been ejaculated upon. They have, I mean, and the list goes on. They have had matter thrown onto them. um, And the experiences are traumatizing to them, to their psyche, to their worth, and nobody was talking. This is not something new. This has been going on for years, and nobody has been talking about this until a group of women from COBA decided to get my ear this spring, and they started recanting their personal experiences to me. I'd never heard of such a thing. You know, in my mother's world, I I can't say that stuff like that never happened, but I've never heard of such a thing. And had it been prevalent, I dare say that my mother would have shared those things heard by her coworkers and others. I never heard such appalling stories coming from um, the inside of the jails, upon women, um, even, even upon men you know, as well. And the fact of the matter is that uh, leadership just put them right back in those spaces once their stories were told. You know, I would ask an oversight: Is anybody keeping a journal, a log, a book, and anything, uh, a transcript? Uh, is some kind of history on what's gone on with these instances? And no, um, there was really no form of, uh, you know, of, of data, uh, of tracking, any kind of tracking mechanism. No way to protect these correction officers, mainly the women who I'm speaking about. So their leadership would put them right back, you know would put them right back in the same situations that they've been in. So then you have, you look now at, you know, CO's calling out and AWOL situations. And I didn't even realize it, but in myself, uh, by talking about this so much in the press that I got over the past few months, two of my own cousins, they're twins. They're captains at, on right, I, I had no idea. And I'm hearing this on Facebook, like, Hey, we're your cousins. Guess what? We're afraid to go to work and we're captains. We're some of the people that you're talking. My head exploded. So you can just imagine the depth, you know, of this, of this story that hasn't been told. And now I can say, yes, even in my own family, um, my, you know, cousins who are younger than I um, are afraid to go to work on Rikers Island because of their own stories of sexual assault in the jail.
0: One more question about jails here. And, This one has a few different parts. I'm hoping you'll get to all of them. I'm going to stuff a lot in. uh, So one other piece of legislation you were involved with was, I believe you co-sponsored the uh, Halt Solitary Bill uh, that set out to fully ban the use of solitary confinement in city jails. Uh, Speaker Corey Johnson never allowed that to come up for a vote. So I'm curious if you intend to give that legislation a vote this year And I'm curious why, given that position, you chose not to sign the open letter to Eric Adams that uh, 29 members sent, saying we need to end solitary, and that he responded harshly to, saying they misstated his position, should have come to him privately first, and didn't have the standing on the issue to question him. So I'm curious if you've spoken to Eric Adams since, and if you share his view on the distinction between, as he's put it, solitary confinement and punitive segregation. So just to recap, uh, Mm -hmm. what's happening with the whole solitary legislation? Have you spoken with Eric Adams since that letter was sent and that exchange about this issue? And do you agree with him on the solitary confinement punitive segregation distinction?
3: Thank you, Harry. As far as the legislation is concerned, there is still uh, discussion to be had around that legislation. Uh, We have brand new members. that, um, that have just come on board. I believe they are all now formally sworn in. Um, and that was not the case when they signed on to that letter. I'll just let you know that as well. And I have spoken to them, some of them about that as well. Um, so yeah, so there's still discussion to be spoken about regarding that legislation, which I uh, am on. Um, as far as speaking to Eric uh, about that in particular, well, kind of um, we did meet and we spoke about a lot of things having to do around public safety and correction and something. So, yeah, we did have a little bit of a discussion about it. Um, it was not an in-depth discussion because we, we still have those conversations that have to be had. So, um, yes, we did speak about it. You know, I, you know, let it be known as I have let it, you know, be known, you know, whenever I have these discussions that, you know, um, you know, with someone that happens to feel, you know, that there are ways to handle solitary confinement, uh, the, <laughs> the space literally of solitary confinement and the issues around it, um, in in that space of so-called punitive segregation, where we're changing the semantics and not necessarily the space. Um, that um, you know that I've visited, you know, more than one occasion and and spoken to detainees that are behind that plexiglass and you know, hearing, you know, their experiences in that, in that space. I just happen to think that, you know, my issue more, more or less is not necessarily, well, yeah, it is the the semantics around it, you know, because I have some thoughts around why we're still using the, we're so much better. I've got so much to say about, we're so much better than solitary confinement in New York City. Um, This issue should have been taken uh, taken up a long time ago when Adrian Adams ever got into the New York City Council or any of this or any letter, you know, from members um, should have ever had to sign on to, which, no, I did not sign on to it. I had my own reasons because I had my own statement to make in my own voice. So that's why I didn't sign on to it. Um, uh, so we should never have gotten to a place in almost 2022 where we are still dealing with the issue of solitary confinement in a civilized society like New York City. Um, when we speak about so-called violent offenders and repeat violent offenders, we have got to deal with the issues and learn how to deal with the issues, you know, and I, I pull my little psych degree out every once in a while, and here it comes. There are preventative measures that can be taken up by a civilized society where we don't necessarily have to get to the space of repeat offenders, where we can look at preventative measures from having anyone ever come to a second Uh, you know, part of their lives where they have issues that brought them to a space of violence. Yes, there are going to be exceptions. Do we still need to consider that space of solitary confinement or punitive segregation to cure that? I happen to not think so, but, you know, I'm still willing to talk about it. Um, I just think that, again, we're better than that. There are ways to deal with individuals, human beings that have issues that may have to do with psychological, emotional, behavioral, those types of issues that they bring to them and and a part of the reasons that they are detainees for the time that they are. We need to deal with that. That space in so-called solitary confinement, if we're going to still do that, punitive, whatever we want to call it. In my opinion, it should be called rehabilitative confinement, whatever. That word rehabilitation should be operational and operative um, in that solitary space if that is what we are going to do to human beings um, in, in, in the year 2022 and beyond. There has to be, time has to be worth it, right? I mean, they can't sit there with cell phones and a TV in so-called punitive space and just say they're in a cramped little space and they're, we're going to have to nuance that thing. Uh, you know, long story short, we're going to have to nuance that. And in in my humble opinion, we need to take a look at ways to rehabilitate instead of ways to continue to punish a behavior that is going to continue unless we rehabilitate.
1: So I want to pick up from there because, you know, Eric Adams made this proclamation before he was even signed in. I mean, this is something that people have been working on for years to try and decrease solitary confinement. And this seems to be his day one agenda with his Zen beads and veganism and meditation and yoga and all this, but he still feels like, you know, solitary is something that should be implemented. Um, And my concern with Eric Adams was not just the implementation of solitary confinement, but the response when people said that this is somewhat of a problem. It was, if you haven't worn the badge for 22 years, you can't question me. And so that is my larger concern about incoming Mayor Eric Adams and how he'll govern in a quasi-authoritarian way. He's also made it a, a distinct point to have descriptive representation of female leadership in key positions. Um, I'll, I'll wait to see what substantive leadership looks like. But there's a difference between Eric Adams appointing women in his cabinet and you as the Speaker of City Council, who he did not appoint um, and so you're not essentially uh, serving at the pleasure of the mayor. Are you, can you sort of give us a window into how you plan on approaching your relationship with Eric Adams? You've known him for a very long time, but both of you are in very different positions, you know, the same Bayside anymore. So he is the mayor, but you are also the speaker. You speak on behalf of 51 members, but also the, the citizens of New York and non-citizens of New York as well. What are some things that you're looking forward to or cautious about or a little bit apprehensive about um, going into January 1? Oh, okay, that would be tomorrow. So going into your tenure uh, as the new speaker.
3: Thank you, Dr. Greer, for that. Yeah, you know, we have known each other for a long time, and I think that is to our mutual benefit, quite honestly. Um, we, uh, we hope to... Um, make history in the city of New York. First of all, we are two people of color um, existing um, in a co-equal space. That's something that's never been done before. Um, We are going to have to make that space as comfortable, as amicable um, as we can um, for the people of the city of New York. So my approach, um, and I believe it's his approach as well, um, is that we are looking to partner. Uh, we know that there are things that we're not going to agree on. That's expected. That's expected in my body, you know, uh, you know of the members, you know, this beautiful, uh, beautifully uh, diverse uh, membership that we have of, of ideology and everything else that we're bringing to the table. But when it comes to, you know, um, working with the mayor, uh, we plan to do that in very close partnership We plan to do that with mutual respect, with a lot of open communication um, uh, and honesty. Uh, I don't think that either of us is looking for any kind of gotchas, you know, any kind of, or any kind of gimme moments, because I don't think that that's going to be healthy um, for his administration or for my body. Um, And, you know, although, you know, again, we expect some level of uh, disagreement, we fully intend on. being truthful and honest with each other about we can, what we can do, what we can cannot do, and what we will not do, um, for whatever that interest is in the moment. So, that's the way that I'm going into this thing. Uh, you know, uh, my expectation again is to go in in partnership. Um, uh, the mayor and I have an opportunity right now, um, as two African Americans in leadership in the greatest city of the world, um, to make a mark as such, um, and that to me, is the greater look of all of this uh, in that what we are going to be able to deliver to this city and to be that model, not of discord, but that model of partnership to elevate this city, to elevate New Yorkers um, into places that we haven't seen before. So for me, it's a a little bit higher um, than, you know, what's good, what's not good, how we're going to fight. We don't, you know, intend on, uh, we're going to agree on more than what we disagree on. But for me, the bigger picture, again, is being that model. uh, Everybody's eyes are going to be on New York, you know, doing this unprecedented thing in leadership. And, um, you know, my hope and expectation is that we fulfill that model in excellence so that other cities can take this on and say, wow, look what two African-American leaders are able to do in New York, something that's never been done before. And if they can do it, we can do it.
2: Thank you for that. I, I did want to just ask. Um, looking at this council, it is the most diverse women majority for the first time, youngest member in history, just and actually more Republicans that we've had in in, in recent years. Um, and I know that that letter, that solitary letter, it did spark at least an initial reaction of, of Mayor Adams, where he said, basically, you know, I'm the mayor. I'm not, I'm going to ignore the people in the council who I might disagree with. Um, how do you plan on as the leader of this council, I guess, helping if if there are fights and, you know, you have some members of the council who are incredibly, incredibly progressive and to the left, um, to the left of, of him and to the left of you, and, and certainly to the left of some of the other more moderate two Republican members, um, you kind of look ahead as to how you will balance that, especially if there will be tension set up, you know, with it was a great sound up soundbite from Mayor Adams saying basically like, I'm the mayor. Guess what? Deal with it. But we know that it can create larger tensions when it comes to legislation and other issues of government. So what are your plans for that?
0: And he said he said uh, yeah. I, I was elected mayor. And you're going to have to deal with that. And of course, he was responding to a whole bunch of people, uh, you know, who'd just been elected to council seats, uh, and you know, actually, implicitly, in some sense, perhaps, due to to your, your election that's about to be formalized as, as as speaker. So, so you know, does he have some unique claim at this point, having been elected, like a, a mandate that the council needs to respect, or how do you see that dynamic? Yeah, that's another good
3: question you know, again, and it goes back to my philosophy of open communication, um, you know, where we're going to have to talk about it. We're going to have to talk about, uh, you know, the way, again, the way that we want the world to see us uh, and what light the world wants, us, wants, you know, the way that we want to be seen. So again, it's going to be open, honest communication. You know, obviously I was not privy, privy to any of that uh, prior to, you know, to those sound bites coming out, you know, by our mayor. But again, it's going to be that communication and some understanding, you know, uh, you know about, uh, you know, again, mutual respect on both sides of the of the hall. Um, so again, my my response to that is only you know open communication, getting some thoughts out there, um, getting my thoughts out there, and uh, hopefully working on a really really good compromise in the future.
2: Thank you. And I I do want I know you have another meeting to go to and it is New Year's Eve. So we have to start, I guess, getting our champagne chilled. Um, What are the thoughts do you want to add, at least, you know, any kind of experience? I guess you don't have to make your pitch for speaker anymore. And to borrow the Mayor Adams words, it's you deal with it. But what what are you kind of, I guess, your final pitch in terms of what we can expect as citizens, as regular people um, from a council led by you?
3: Great question, and and, and, and such a great way to sign off as well.
2: You know, um, in in my
3: estimation, for the first time, we have uh, membership in the way of the New York City Council that is representative of all New Yorkers. Um, We've got so many firsts. We've got, you know, um, the youngest member, we've got the first South Asian male, we have a number of, of Asian American women. We have mothers. We have pregnant mothers to be. Um, we have pet lovers. We, I mean, <laughs> we have. I mean, we have had so many laughs about this over, you know, over my getting to know these amazing people um, in their, uh, in all of their glory, you know, over the past few months, and just knowing the enthusiasm, uh, uh, the brilliance, the energy um, that they are bringing right now, representing their districts. I can't tell you, I couldn't be more excited and honored. Um, and for the first time, we'll have an African American speech. I still can't believe we're saying that in the year 20. It still gets me a little bit. You know, I was the first woman elected, you know, to, to in District 28, for, to, in the New York City Council for District 28 for you. And that still feels weird doing it. So the, 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 the fact that we're still having these firsts um, is an amazing thing. It's a great thing, but it's also kind of, I don't know. I don't want to say sad, but I'll just say it's, it's something for us to really, really work on, again, as a society and come to face our facts and our truths as a society, uh, because we should have far more first than, you know, than we're having. But the fact that I think we've got the momentum going is a beautiful, positive thing to move us forward. So the people of the city of New York can look for the most uh, uh, diverse council ever. Obviously, we can look at giving women the space to govern in only the way that women can, because we govern and we lead uh, totally different than than men. And that energy coming in is a nurturing energy. Um, It is a feeling energy. It is something that that feels feels you, um, you know, in the very spiritual sense of the word. Uh, and, And we're bringing that energy in a majority in this body for the first time. So the people of the city of New York can look for extraordinary leadership, very, very different leadership, um, very competent leadership. Look for it to be healthy. Look for it to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, pretty forceful, um, different, uh, but look for it to be very great. And I'm honored to lead this ball.
0: Very quick question to just coda <laughs> that coda. Yeah, we do this. <laughs> Multiple closes. We
1: never want to let you leave. One more thing. <laughs>
0: You, you, you came up, um, and began your, your political career, uh, in, in, smaller offices. And then you, you ran against a, uh, uh, my, my formulation, of course, um, a, a, a corrupt guy in, um, in Sanders and James Sanders, and then ran and won your council seat after losing that race against a, uh, a corrupt guy, um, convicted, right. Um.
2: <laughs> it was then tossed out. Reuben, you know, to Ruben, be fair, yeah. Reuben Wills, It was, which allowed him to run again in the in the in the summer. But yes. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, so so I, as 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 a woman who's now leading the council, who who sort of made your way up through New York politics and around the Queens machine, and as. as run against, and in some cases defeated the, the, these sorts of, of men, does that give you a different sort of perspective on government, uh, on how the council should be run, and on anything else, in addition to what, you know, you've seen over the de Blasio years and how that's been covered?
3: Um, well, I would say yes, you know, um, particularly in the, last, um, in the last area, you know, having to come in, you know, into office after my predecessor you know, and actually living that, it came into an absolute mess uh, where we were totally underserved, um, underfulfilled, At the bottom of the barrel, when it came to any kind of funding, his funding had been stripped by uh, two previous speakers. So, uh, and, and given to another council member t- to have leadership over. So when I came in and I actually had, had a meeting with that council member, I just couldn't believe how much funding had been taken away from District 28. And I'm wondering, you know, why our seniors weren't funded, why our schools were, you know, not given anything, um, any particular look or or, or money or anything the way that they should have been looked at. And then come to find out, well, of course, you know, um, my colleague in another district doesn't know District 28. So they didn't realize who needed what, or I don't know if they cared or whatever. So funds were not allocated uh, appropriately. So So the answer is, yes, Harry, I've learned a lot, Um, again, particularly from uh, um, the mess that my predecessor left me uh, walking into and some of the things that I've had to push forward um, in in making some unprecedented moves, primarily in the way of funding capital undiscretionary, uh, in the way of funding nonprofits. Um, uh, Over over 41 nonprofits that had never received funding from, from the city before have been funded um, uh under my leadership in the, in the council uh, for these nonprofits that are bringing extraordinary services into district 28. So the answer is yes, I've learned a lot. Uh, I plan to share you know that message with my colleagues as needed. Um, and um, I'm looking forward to them being you know extraordinary as well in their districts.
1: Well thank you so much for coming on. Can you promise us that you'll come back? just ask. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. And we're wishing you the best of luck. My mom's an AK. She pledged in 68. So Wonderful. of course Wonderful. I'm Wonderful. I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for all AKs <laughs> <laughs> and, and Queens girls, obviously. Of but course. you know, I, I think, you, you know, coming from Queens and there's a lot of Brooklyn leadership, there's a lot of male leadership across the city. You have a real opportunity to, to set a tone and a pace uh, in 2022 with all that's facing New York. And we are, honor that you were able to come on FAQ and thank you for your service. You need to change your Zoom title, by the way. <laughs> to hey, <speak>. You're right.
3: <laughs> it After says, the 5th, Dr. Yeah. Greer.
1: Okay. Uh, <laughs> things will, have to come a lot back of things will and change. And we'll, make, we'll make sure that's changed, <laughs> yes. but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank, thank
3: you, you all for being so thank gracious. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank
2: Happy you so New New much. Year. Happy New Year. FAQ. F-A-Q. <laughs>
1: FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. A special thank you to our guest this week, incoming Speaker of City Council, Adrian Adams. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be well, wear a mask, wash your hands, get a shot, do all the things, and have a happy new year.